Well, it's a joy to be here with you this morning. I have a quick announcement before I get into the message. Our mission banquet is coming up. I know, I can sense the excitement. It's just pouring from you. Even as I say those two words, mission banquet. Come on, it's coming. I know. June 4th, four weeks from today, 6 to 8.30 p.m. It's going to be a great evening of fellowship. We're going to have world-class, five-star, 27 Michelin chefs. I mean, it's going to be phenomenal. Dinner for you, live music, a short message, emphasis on the short, and our one and only Tyler Jacobs auctioning off items. I mean, how could you say no to that, right? It's going to be a wonderful time. Some of you are saying, well, Chris, why should I go? I'm not going, I'm not serving in kids' camp, I'm not going to India, I'm not going to Honduras. Why should I go? Well, there's a twofold purpose for our mission banquet. Number one, we want to stir you up to be mission minded, to have a heart for the nations, a heart for the gospel, both here and abroad. And do we need to be stirred up from time to time? I think we do. This is what God has saved us for and called us to be people who love the gospel and broadly proclaim it. And so that's one of the purposes. To be stirred up. Well, I think all of us could stand to be that stirred up. And secondly, it's to raise funds, to raise prayer support for our teams as they go. And so it'll be a great opportunity to be a part of this twofold purpose. If I can quote Dr. John Piper, when Dr. John Piper talks about global missions, buckle up. He says, You either go, you send, you pray, or you sin. I'm a little offended by that. What? You go, you send, you pray. You're doing one or all three or some combination of those three. And if you're not, what are you doing? Sinning. And so the missions banquet is a way for our church to get behind these teams in prayer and support. You're saying, well, who is this for? Well, it's for everyone. We want everyone to come. You say, well, Chris, what's the cost? Cost is a big thing. Obviously, it's a fundraiser. We're trying to raise funds. All the proceeds go to our true short-term mission teams. And so we devised a pricing plan for you. You know, if you're like the Mike Goins family and you have 11 teen kids, you need help, right? I mean, you need help. We need financial assistance. So basically, kids 11 and under are free. Woohoo! 12 to 17, $10 for you starving high school students, junior high students. And then 18 and over is 25. Now, some of you may say, hey, my business, my company, my family, we want to sponsor a table. Well, you can do that. Sponsor a whole table for $150, and you go get four other people, and you invite them to the banquet as your guests. Some of you are saying, Chris, I don't have a dollar. That's okay. You come for free. You will be a personal guest of Mr. Randy Swearingen for the evening. Because guess what? You may not be able to bid on items for the auction. You may not be able to pay the $25 ticket to get in the door. But can you pray? Absolutely. So come, even if you can't afford to come. Come. We want you to come. We want you to be there. If someone says, where's your ticket? Say, talk to Randy. He's got it worked out. It's like the Italian mafia going on over there. What's going on? And so you can come. 
We, we want you to come. We want you to be a part. We want you to sign up at the back table tonight or today for that night so we know how much food to prepare. And for some of you, there's other ways to serve. You may have a good or a service that you want to donate to the church, donate to the mission banquet to be auctioned off. You know, I have four teenagers. I'm figuring out how do I rent these kids out to clean someone's house or something? How do we leverage this, right? Uh, maybe you have a good or a service, something that you want to be auctioned off. Tyler will get bang for the buck for whatever you bring. Right, Tyler? I mean, he has the gift. He's like my favorite cowboy. And so bring it. There's a sign-up sheet. You can sign up if you want to bring something for the auction or just talk to Amy Jacobs. So we don't want you to miss it. Put it on your calendar. June 4th, four weeks from today. Sign up today, and may God bless you as you participate with us in what he's doing all over the world. Well, with that in mind, it is my absolute privilege to open up the Word of God with you this morning, the time that we have remaining. You know, there are certain events in life that naturally create an an atmosphere of anticipation of hope, of eager expectation. Like the day that I stood before a church filled with my friends and my family, full of hope, waiting for my beautiful bride. Well, that's weird. I'm pointing at Jacob Parrott. (laughs) For my beautiful bride to come down this aisleway. I mean, the anticipation was literally killing me. My hands were, my palms were sweaty, my nerves were frayed, and I was thinking, this is the woman that asked me to marry her. (laughs) The one. And I said, yes, and some of you, you know me. You're like, man, Chris, that was the grace of God that she even asked you to be her husband. You guys know I'm kidding, of course. I couldn't wait to start our life together. And as my groomsmen and her bridesmaids came down, I felt like I was Adam naming the animals. Nope, that's not the one. Nope, not, that's not the one. Nope, that's not the one. And then she appeared like a, a radiant vision of beauty. And as she began to come down the aisle, I remember thinking, this is the day where two become one. Such hope such joy. It was a day sparkling with hope that will be forever etched in my memory. Well, the Bible also talks about another day, a day that is coming quickly that should create hope and anticipation and expectation for every believer. What is this day? Well, we know it's the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the groom, who will return for his bride, the church. Can I get an amen? He is coming back. In fact, this topic of Christ's return has been in my heart ever since Easter, ever since Pastor Ken walked us through that glorious passage in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Christian, where is your citizenship What does your eternal passport say? Are you of Texas? Are you an American? I am of the Astros. 
No, we are of Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. And who are we waiting for? Our precious Lord and Savior. This is good news, glorious news. And then the busyness of life returns. And the mortgage bill has to be paid. I have to figure out how I'm going to pay for my kids' college. Four daughters, four weddings. I know, pray for me. Stress of work. And I don't know about you, but end of school this. There's a banquet for that and a sports thing for this. And a, it is busy. And this, this thought of heaven and the return of Christ, this thought of this glorious reunion between me and my Savior becomes lost in the busyness of life and the tyranny of the urgent. And it shouldn't be like this. I mean, think about this with me. Have you ever met a bride who simply stopped thinking about her impending wedding day? No. I mean, why do we have so many like, say yes to the dress, and are you skinny enough to fit in the dress? And I mean, they have all these shows about the wedding and everything that it takes to get ready for it. I mean, I don't know about you, but my wife was ready at age five. I mean, ever since she officiated her first ceremony between Barbie and Ken, she was ready, thinking about that day, planning out dresses and and hues of color. Oh, do I like the fuchsia or a seafoam green? You know, we were from the 80s. <laughs> Planning every event meticulously, every flower, every vase, every song, every vow, with anticipation for that day when the groom and the bride would be reunited and start a new life. Well, I've concluded. I, I don't think I think enough about Christ and heaven and his return. Do you? Do you have the hope of heaven in your heart this morning? With that in mind, I'd like for us to turn to a text this morning that reminds us why we should be eagerly waiting for Christ's return. Turn with me to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Now, I'm about to teach three verses from the middle of a book. It's very important for us to understand a little bit of the context of this book so that we properly understand the meaning of these verses. Most Bible scholars agree that the book of 1 John was written by the Apostle John while he was pastoring a church in Ephesus. In fact, we, probably, we believe it was probably toward the latter years of his life. The letter appears to have been written to Gentile Christians... There's the audience, Gentile Christians who were faced with false teaching. Probably some form of heresy against the incarnation of Christ. So they were fine with Jesus was 100% God. They were having a hard time with the 100% man part, that he was of flesh. In fact, many scholars believe this was the early beginning for those uh, church buffs, history, church history buffs, of Gnosticism. This, this terrible false heresy that swept through the early churches. So John positively attacks this heresy by reasserting the basics of Christian faith in life. And in fact, if you look at 1 John 
this becomes a key theme verse to understanding one of the main purposes of the book. John says this, 1 John 5, 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that, here's the purpose, you may know you have eternal life. Well, what's the th- these things he's talking about? It's all of the, the verses and chapters he's written up until then. Everything I've written from chapters 1 to 5, I've written these for the explicit purpose to you who believe, Christian, that you may have assurance of your salvation. You may know that on that day, you are going to be His and reunited to your Savior. If we had time to study the book, we would see this theme throughout. In fact, John uses a series of tests to help Christians assess and measure themselves. Because true Christians will grow to display the characteristics of genuine Christianity in sound doctrine, in faith, in obedience, and love. So here in 1 John 3, 1-3, we have three reasons why we should be eagerly waiting for Christ's return. Three reasons why we should be eagerly waiting for Christ's return. And here's the point. The point of this section. If you are a true Christian... You will have hope focused on Christ, focused on His imminent return. You will be eagerly waiting for His return. And that hope will have a purifying effect in your life. Now let me read our text for this morning, 1 John, starting, uh, 1 John 3, starting in verse 1. John says this, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as he is pure. See, the first reason why we should be eagerly waiting for Christ's return, we find in verse 1. It's what we are. We're children of God. Notice John begins, he says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. This verb, see, it's a command. See, behold. But it also functions as an exclamation, encouraging the reader to pay close attention to what is to follow. We could almost translate this verse like this. Behold, what peculiar, out-of-this-world kind of love the Father has bestowed on us. Like a herald crying it in the city streets. Pay attention. You think, what is so out of the ordinary about this divine, great, agape love? Well, we know, don't we? Those of us who have heard the gospel and received the gospel... We understand how great this love is. We sang about it this morning. We celebrated it here at the Lord's table. Because while we were still enemies of God, helpless sinners, Christ literally loved us to death. This word bestowed has the idea of an unearned gift, which once received is permanent, it's complete. In fact, it abides in us. So God gives us His love in such a way that it actually becomes a part of us. At great cost, this love was given freely for our benefit, regardless of our unworthiness. Now, some of you are saying, well, Chris, I'm not unworthy. I'm not 
unlovely or unlovable, well, turn over to Romans 5. Romans chapter 5. Look at verses 6 to 11. There's a number of verses I could have chosen to prove this point. Notice what Paul says in Romans 5, 6 to 11. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God, don't you love those beautiful conjunctions? But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Is that not good news, believer? I don't know about you. I want to get in on that. Saved from the wrath of God to come. Verse 10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more than having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. See, it's difficult, if not impossible, to articulate this type of love. There is absolutely nothing good or righteous or worthy in you or I. Helpless. We were incapable of saving ourselves. No matter how good you are, no matter how many good things you and I try to do, it never satisfies God's perfect standard of righteousness. We will always fall short. Helpless. Why? Because we're ungodly. That's what Paul said. God-haters, enemies. And God still sent Christ to the cross out of love for us. He didn't just save us from His wrath to come by giving us a clean slate. He lifted us up to the exalted position of son and daughter. And because we are children of God, this is a guarantee of future glory. You say, well, Chris, how did we become children of God? Turn over to John 1 in the Gospels. John 1, verse 12. John says this, John 1, 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. You see, for those who would repent of their sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior, John is saying that he gives you and me the right to become a child of God, to be adopted into the family of God. He doesn't just take away the penalty, the shame, and the guilt of our sin, but He then takes us and elevates us to the position of family with God. I think this explains the wonder of the great hymn writer Charles Wesley when he asked this familiar question. Maybe you've sung this a time or two. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Now, I know it's a little bit Puritanish and archaic language. What is Charles Wesley saying? He is surprised. Why is he surprised? How is it possible that I could gain a part of God's great love through the blood of my Savior, Jesus Christ? It's incomprehensible. He goes on, died he for me who caused his pain? I was the one that drove the nails. I was the one. It was my sin he was dying for. 
I caused his pain. For me, who him to death pursued, even to the very brink of hell, redeemed us from eternal damnation. And so Charles Wesley concludes, Amazing love! How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Isn't that beautiful? In the context of understanding who we are apart from God's divine pardon and what we really deserve. See, there's a sense of surprise, isn't there? Charles Wesley is surprised. He's in wonder. He's in awe that God would love him so much. Have you ever sung a song? A song you've sung hundreds of times, maybe. And the words grip you in a unique way. Maybe there was a scripture you read that morning. Maybe you're going through a season of your life. And the profound truth, biblical truth, of the words that you're singing up on that screen hits you in such a way that you are just amazed at the love of God. Dumbfounded that He would send His Son to die for you. You've been reading through the Bible and you come to a passage that talks about the cost and the sacrifice of the cross and it hits you in a way and you are just broken in gratitude and thankfulness. That's what it is to be a child of God. To be reminded of the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. This is why communion is so special for us. We do it once a month. Why? Because we want to remember, we forget so quickly the sacrifice, the cost of the substitutionary atonement of Christ in our place. My salvation came at cost. And so John says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. He concludes verse 1, for this reason the world does not know us. Why? Because the world didn't know Him. Don't be surprised, Christian, when you encounter trials and difficulty in this world living in love for God. Because you are seeking to please God, who is the world seeking to please itself. That's why Jesus says you can't have two masters. You're either going to love God or you're going to love mammon, money the world, your own pleasure. You're going to be in pursuit of pleasing God or you're going to be in pursuit of pleasing self. So it's no surprise that children of the world don't know us, those of us who are children of God, because it's the love of God through faith in Christ that unites us as family. In fact, John already talks about this. Look over in 2.15, 1 John 2.15. He says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father, it's from the world. So when Christians don't participate in these things, when we pursue love and humility and sacrifice, when we extend grace and mercy, when we do what's right, even though it's countercultural, we shouldn't be surprised that the world doesn't know us, doesn't love us, doesn't want to be our BFF. My daughters had to explain to me what that meant. Best friend forever. 
shouldn't surprise us. Does our life show that we have a proper understanding of the love of God? As God's children, is it reflected in how we live our lives and our priorities and our purposes? Do we practically love others out of the outpouring of God's love for us? Again, 1 John 4.19, what does that verse say? We love because we're so good. We love because, well, we're the full package. I mean, how could we not love? What does it say? We love because He first loved us. Is that a characteristic of your life? Extending that love you have received to others because if we are children of God, do we long to be reunited with the one who gave it all for our behalf? I mean, have you thought about seeing Christ? Have you thought about what it's going to be like? I mean, doubting Thomas put his fingers in the holes. This really is Christ, my Savior, risen from the dead. I wonder at that moment when he realized I had nothing to fear. This is Christ. He is raised from the dead. What went through his mind? If there was any shame or guilt at doubting, I think it was quickly washed away by the amazing wonder of what Jesus did for him. And I have to wonder, when I come face to face with Christ, what will I be thinking? There was a dramatic rescue in east of Dallas. Maybe you saw this in the news this last week. There was an overturned car. Did you see that? That toddler and that baby that both drowned in this flood water. And all these people stopped and got the kids. And there was this lady who was praying in the name of Jesus. Lord Jesus, I pray you, let this baby breathe. This person was videoing the whole thing. It was, it was dramatic. They got the baby out. They got the toddler out. They started doing CPR. Both the baby and the toddler were revived. I don't know if it was the next day. They brought in one of these rescuers who just so happened to be, happened to be <laughs> driving by, put their own life at risk to rescue this baby and this toddler. The minute this guy walked into the room, the mom sees him and just gets up and hugs him and starts crying, saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. What a beautiful picture of the recognition of someone who sacrificed on their behalf. They didn't have to, but it was love. What is it going to be like when you come face to face with the one who rescues you from hell and damnation? first reason why we should be eagerly waiting for Christ's return is what we are. We're children of God saved by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Secondly, second reason is what we shall be perfectly like Christ. Notice in verse 2, John goes on, he says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. Notice carrying on with the theme of verse 1. He says, Beloved, in having thought through what he had just written in verse 1, how could he not call them loved of John? Beloved. Beloved of God. Beloved of me. We are children of God. 
he recognizes that both he and his readers' very existence is found in the gift of love from God. So he says, beloved, now we are children of God. This word now, in the Greek, it functions as a transition word. So what it does is it ties in what God has done through Christ in verse 1, his ultimate expression of love for us, through salvation, making us children, and what he will do in the future, which verse 2 talks about, making us perfect like Christ. So it's an important transition from verse 1 to verse 2. And notice what he says, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. And this is referring to the time when Christ shall come back for us as Christians, time that we commonly refer to as the second coming of Christ or the rapture of Christians. Now, it's important to point out that even John didn't know exactly what our new glorified bodies will be. You know, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later on. But I want to just walk us through the important sequence found in the rest of verse 2 that I think will help us to understand this verse. First, what happens first? Well, notice what it says. We know that when he appears first, Jesus Christ appears. Again, this should be our great hope. Christ is coming back. He is going to appear. He is coming back. Second, what's the next thing? It says, we shall see him just as he is. When he comes, we shall see him. In fact, Acts 1.11 states, The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Again, this is referring to the ascension of Christ at the end of the days when after his, his uh, crucifixion and resurrection, he ascends back into the heaven to seat at the right hand of the Father. And the disciples are watching him go up into heaven. And the angel says, Why are you doing that? Why are you looking up there? He's going to come down the same way he went up. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul clarifies that on that day, we will see Jesus face to face. We're going to see him. We're going to be with him. In fact, turn over with me to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. I realize there's so many passages that we could look at. We could just turn this whole Sunday into a study of eschatology, of end times. We don't have time to do all of that. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-7 talks about this day, what we call as the rapture. 1 Thess 4, starting in verse 16, says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Again, this echoes what was said in Acts 1.11. With a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. So it describes this future event which will take place when Christ comes from heaven to the air. There's a shout, there's trumpet, there's noise. It's going to be hard to miss. The dead in Christ rise, and then those who are alive come up. And we meet him in the heavens and then go to heaven with him. Do you long for this day to come? For Christ to come back. Because that's what John says. He says, when he appears, we shall see him just as he is. But notice that's not all that happens. Because third, we shall be made like him. Christ appears, we see him, and then thirdly, we are made like him. That's what John says. 
You can look at Colossians 3, 4. We don't have time to go through all these passages. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 to 49. But I do want you to turn back to Philippians 3, 20. Again, Ken did such a great job walking us through this text. I don't need to spend a lot of time on it. Philippians 3, 20 to 21 talks about how we are made like Him. And it says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Now, now, this side of heaven, this side of the rapture, we are being progressively made more like Christ. But our bodies are still natural, confined to natural laws of this world. You see, when Christ returns, we will receive a new glorified body. And we will be fully like Christ, free of defilement, free of sin and sorrow and sickness and death in both body and soul. In fact, we believe that our glorified bodies will be just like Christ's post-resurrection body, what was he able to do? Again, John 20, 19, he was able to walk through walls. The disciples were meeting, the doors were closed, and then all of a sudden he appeared in the midst of them. I would have screamed like a little girl. That would have been terrifying to have Jesus just appear. All the doors are shut. He could do that. And for those of you that are really hoping there's going to be an all-night chocolate bar buffet with chocolate-covered strawberries for all of eternity in heaven, you have hope. Because Luke 24, 43 says that even Christ in this post-resurrection body, he ate. He ate with the disciples. Now, whether we have to eat in heaven or don't have to eat in heaven, that's for uh, more debate, well, more discussion. Have fun studying that. We're not exactly sure. All we know is Christ was able to eat. In 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 44, tells us that our glorified bodies will be first incorruptible, meaning they will never decay. I don't know about you, but, but this side of 45, it seems like my body is in a rapid state of decay. Anyone feel my pain? I mean, you feel it, don't you? These young kids are going, what is he talking about? You'll get there. Our glorified body will be incorruptible. It will be glorified. It will be powerful. And it will be spiritual. And that's what Paul is talking about in Philippians 3.20 about being transformed. And the theological term for this is glorified. Now back to 1 John 3. Notice it says we will be like Christ. And this is where the cults get it wrong. This doesn't mean we will be little gods doesn't mean we'll be a Christ. It says we will be like Him. So it means we'll be similar to Christ, reflecting His holiness, having resurrected bodies like He does even now. It's important for us to understand that even here in our text. So what's the point? The point is to see God just as He is. We must first be made like Christ to be with Him in heaven forever. Therefore, seeing Christ will be both the reason for our transformation and the proof of our transformation. When He appears, we shall see Him and we will be made like Him. Do you long 
for this day to come, to be reunited with your Savior, to be free of sin. To hear those words, good job, well done, my good and faithful servant. The first reason why we should eagerly wait for Christ's return is what we are, children of God. The second is what we shall be, perfectly like Christ. Let me jump to the third, what we should be, pure as Christ is pure. We find this in verse 3. What should we be, pure as Christ is pure? Notice John goes on. He says, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. See, God's great love has not only brought us into his family, his children. It's given us the great hope that Christ will return, that we will be perfected, glorified, physically, morally, and spiritually. And this hope that Christ is coming back gives every true Christian a greater passion to pursue holiness and to be more Christ-like while here on this earth. I think to better understand what we should be, let's examine the focus and the impact of hope. What is hope's focus? What is hope's impact from this verse? Let's look first at hope's focus. Notice John says, everyone who has this hope fixed on him. Again, what's the hope that every true Christian should have? It should be fixed on the return of Christ. And based in the context of verses 1 and 2, specifically, Christ's return and the assurance of Christ's likeness. Because as children of God, we have the promise of future glorification at Christ's return. Now think about this. When you and I hear or use the word hope, we typically use it in the context of a wish. Man, I sure hope the Astros do well this season. In fact, the Astros are doing well this season, right? I guess i got to pick. I sure hope the Houston Dynamos really do well this season. You know, someone who's not doing so well. What is it? Do you know what's going to happen? Are you assured? Do you have a promise? No, you hope. And those of us with face paint on and the whole, you know, you guys hope a little bit more than the rest of us. You know, we have programs for help for people like you. They say, man, we hope it's a boy. After my third girl, I gave up. I'm like, there is no way we're having boys. We had four girls. My family, my dad's like, if you don't have another child, a boy, my family name is dead. Sorry, dad, I gave up hope on number three. Not happening. Four is a blessed number. But you say, I hope it's a boy. I hope it's a girl. You say, I hope he learns to throw his dirty socks in the hamper. Ladies, anyone? Can I get an amen? Don't give up hope, ladies. Maybe he'll learn someday. Well, the outcome is uncertain, isn't it? At the end of the day, you don't really know. That's why we say, I hope, I wish. But biblically, hope is not a wish. In fact, hope is not even wishful thinking. Rather, it is a confident expectation based on the Word of God and His faithfulness. Turn with me to Hebrews 10.23. Hebrews 10.23, this wonderful passage. It says just this. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast, literally cling, the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because if you just try really hard, everything's going to get better? No, what does it say? He who promised is faithful. My hope is not based 
on me. It's based on God, who He is, what He has done, what He is doing, and what He has promised He will do. That's where my hope is fixed on. It's on Him. Hope that we have fixed on Christ is based on a supreme, perfect, loving, faithful God who has already done the work for us. Victory is assured. And this type of hope is expressed in confident expectation that the believer will share fully in God's eternal life. This is why our hope is ultimately fulfilled in Christ's likeness. Did you get that? Our hope is ultimately fulfilled in Christ's likeness. Progressively now, progressive sanctification, the process where we become more like Christ now, and perfectly then in that future glorification. But our hope must be fixed on Him. This must be hope's focus. Well, if that is our focus, what is the impact of that hope? While we wait for Christ's return, this side of heaven, well, notice John says, everyone who has this hope fixed on Him does what? Lives their Christian life to their best of their ability, making the best American dream life they can have, trying to raise the kids the best they can, put their nickel in every week. Here you go, God. Is that why God sent His Son to die for you, Christian? Is that why He saved me? No, He saved me to redeem me. To what? To purify me so that I would be what? Useful to Him, pleasing to Him in every respect. That's why He did it. Hope's impact, we are to purify ourselves just as He is pure. Christ is our model for purity. And if we fix our hope on Christ in His imminent return, then what should happen? Purity. It's purifying hope. You think, well, what drives this purifying hope? Is it just the thought that Christ is going to appear? Well, I think at least in the following three things, we can find this motivating, driving desire to be purified with our hope fixed on Christ. First, the love of God. A, the love of God. Again, just think of everything John has said in verse 1. If God sacrificed so much to free me from the slavery and death of sin, why would I willingly, why would I knowingly re-enslave myself to it? 1 John three sixteen, we know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. What motivates us to lay down our lives for the brethren? It's the example of Christ. 1 John 4, 9-10. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means, means literally satisfaction. When Christ died on the cross, He satisfied. When God said, if you sin, you shall die. Someone had to pay that price. When Jesus paid it, God's wrath was satisfied. That's what that word propitiation means. So verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So God's love motivates purity. Because we hate to displease God. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.9 says. Paul says, we make it our ambition, whether home or absent, 
to be pleasing to Him. My number one goal, my number one desire on this earth or in heaven is to please God with everything, to please Him. That's why Paul told the Colossians in Colossians 1, 9-12 that you would walk worthy. Why? To please Him in all respects. Every respect of my life. How could I not want to please the one who gave so much for me? In fact, Warren Wearsby illustrates this with us for a story, uh, illustrates this for us with a story. He says a group of teenagers were enjoying a party and someone suggested they go to a certain restaurant for a good time. I'd rather you took me home, Jan said to her date. My parents don't approve of that place. Afraid your father will hurt you, one of the girls asked sarcastically. No, Jan replied. I'm not afraid my father will hurt me, but I am afraid I might hurt him. You see, she understood the principle that a true child of God who has experienced the love of God has no desire to sin against that love. No desire to sin against that love. The love of God should drive this purifying hope, but B, secondly, a desire to be ready for His return. When will Christ return? Do we know this? Who here knows? Have you read books where they've prophesied about the return of Christ? Have you read some of those? Those are good. Every time there's a prophecy, what happens? Fail. I mean, aren't you thankful we're not living in Old Testament times where you stoned prophets? If you get it wrong once, you're stoned, killed. When will he return? Well, Luke 12 tells us to be ready because verse 40 says, The Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. What does that mean? Any moment. We don't know. You can try to figure out, oh, well, the positioning of the Middle East and what the major powers is creating this, and so it's probably going to happen in the next two years. And, well, you don't know because the Bible says you don't know. It may be coming sooner, but how many centuries have Christians been saying, I think it's going to happen any day now? We just don't know. James 5.8 says the coming of the Lord is near. 1 Thessalonians 5.2 says that he will come like a thief in the night. And that's not talking about the rapture, that's talking about judgment. Like a thief in the night. You don't know when the thief breaks in, that's the whole point. If the thief left a little, hey, just want to let you know, welcome to the neighborhood. I will be hitting your house in two weeks, Friday night, 7 p.m. Be ready. You'd be like, you are an idiot. What thieving school did you attend? Because I think you got an F. That's not how thieving works. Why does this illustration work so wonderfully? Because we don't know when Christ is going to return Well, if hope is a confident expectation based on what is true, then what should the knowledge that Christ could return at any second, at any day, do in my life? I think it brings readiness. It brings watchfulness, vigilance, preparedness. I mean, think about this with me. If Shell goes on away, like a two- to three-day woman's retreat, okay, and me and the kids are home, and, you know, I'm a great mom-slash-dad when... She's away. All my great cooking, culinary skills, cleaning skills. I mean, I am just taking care of business. My wife is gone. I get a text. Honey, I'll be home in an hour. Panic! I mean, there are half-eaten ice cream 
jars in the middle melted all over the kitchen floor and in the living room looks like it was hit by a tornado because we had war happen in there with me and the girls and the kitchen sink no one has done dishes all weekend my wife is coming home frantically running around what are we doing trying to get everything spotless why because Shelly hits a lot harder than she looks I'm just telling you big stick that one I learned that right after she asked me to marry her this assumes of course that I love my wife that I want her to find everything as it should be so that she's pleased should be no different with Christ the obvious difference is we're not going to get a text message two hours before his return But think about that for a moment. What if you did? What if right now all of our phone texts, bing, and you all looked at it? We all looked at it. And what does it say? Jesus Christ is coming back in 24 hours. Signed, God. What would you do in the last 24 hours? What have you been putting off? Is there any part of your life, your mind, your spiritual condition that you've been putting off? I'll get to that someday when I finally mature. I'll get around to that. What if you knew Christ was going to come back in 24 hours? What would you say to that person that you still haven't forgiven? What would you say to your loved one who still has not heard and received the gospel? How would that change you? What would you prioritize? Man, I need to go back and have a couple more family devotional times. My kids are not ready. Work, busyness, life, school, it all got so busy, I I didn't spend enough time investing in my kids. What would you do differently if you knew Christ was coming back in 24 hours? Obviously, we're not going to get that text. Would there be shame, wasted time, lost opportunity? Would it drive you to purify, to finally get on those things that you have been putting off? And you recognize purifying is not, has the sense of not only stop doing that which is bad, but purify also has the idea of start doing that which is good. Boy, talk about the mission banquet. How would that motivate your evangelism? You're like, I've never been bold sharing the gospel. If that was going to happen, you would get bold real quick because time is up. If we're living by the word, if we're walking by the power of the Spirit because we have repented of our sins and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we have the ability to purify ourselves, to be progressively sanctified while we wait for that day when He will return. Well, what drives this purifying hope? C, last, a holy and high view of Christ. Again, what does John say? Our, our hope should be fixed on Him, on Christ. 
And you can write Colossians 3, 1 to 4. Set your mind on things above, not things below. Why? Because that's where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Be heavenly minded. Why should the fact that we will see Christ in his magnificent, pure glory cause a Christian to want to become more holy? I mean, is this driven by fear, do you think? I don't think for the Christian we need to be driven by fear. Christ coming back, I'm afraid. It's not terror. In fact, Whitney, when she was a little girl, she had these curls. And she was impish. You're like, that's why she's impish now. She was impish when she was a little girl. She would just get into trouble. I got permission to tell this story, by the way, with some embellishment. She loved cookies. I have no idea where she got that. Loves cookies. Whitney, you've had enough cookies. You only get two. Now stay out of the cookie jar. She knew where the cookie jar was. Michelle and I leave the kitchen. You hear this chair. Michelle and I are stopping and going, oh, she's getting in the cookie jar. So, of course, because we're good parents, we waited to get her deeper into that sin. She's climbing up on the counter. She's reaching up in. And right when she has her hand in the cookie jar, I come and go, what are you doing? (gasps) Caught her. Is that what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back? I hope not. I don't think that's how it should be. It shouldn't be fear. It shouldn't be terror. In fact, I think there's something greater at work here. This this holy and high view of Christ is at work here. It's more than just simple fear. Because in the Bible, when people came face to face in the presence of a divine or angelic being, what did they do? Hi, are you an angel? Did that happen? No. Because they were flat on their face in terror. In fact, often the angels had to say, hey, don't worship me. I'm not God. I'm an angel. I'm the messenger. Worship him. Because they immediately assumed that this pure being was God. They were instantly in the presence of something that was greater than them. Something that was holy and pure. And when you and I as Christians develop a high and holy and pure view of Christ when we see Him in His radiance and who He is in His perfections, what should it do? It should drive us to want to remove anything that interrupts my view of Christ, anything that takes away my passion, anything that that removes my desire to see Him and to be like Him and to please Him. So a high and holy view of Christ is essential. And it drives us to want to be pure, just like Christ is. In fact, one author said it this way. I think this is on the back of your handout. So the hope of appearing before God's presence and of seeing Christ as He is necessarily inspires its recipients with the desire of putting away every defilement that clouds the vision of God. Well, you can write down Titus 2, 11 to 14. I don't have time to read it. Titus 2, 11 to 14. But this passage talks about this super cleansing power that we have in Christ. That when we have this 
understanding of who Jesus is, it drives us to purify every aspect of our life. How's your view of Christ? Is it so big and holy that it drives you to purity? Well, we've examined these three reasons why we should be eagerly waiting for Christ's return. If you are a Christian this morning, you will have a purifying hope that is growing and growing and growing in you, fixed on Christ, fixed on His imminent return. And this hope will drive you to purify your life, creating an even greater longing to see and be with Christ. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. There may be some of you this morning, you have no idea what I'm talking about. This love of the Father, you've never experienced that. And maybe you want to. Maybe you recognize it's the the peace in your life that's been missing. The Word of God says that you too can be a child of God if you would but humble yourself. Admit you are a sinner, confess it to God, and ask for His forgiveness. And then take your faith off of whatever it is that you are putting your trust in, whether it's good works or going to church or being a better person or some empty religion, whatever it is, take your faith and your trust off of that and put it on Jesus Christ, who alone is your Savior. And the Bible says that you will be saved and made a son or a daughter in His family. And I pray that this would be the day where you become a child of God so that you too can have the hope that when Christ returns, you will be drawn up with Him into heaven for all of eternity. Because we are the church, we are the bride of Christ, and we should be doing everything we can to get ready for that day, eagerly waiting, a day that is coming sooner than we could even imagine. Are you ready? Don't let the tyranny of the urgent, the busyness of life, the tempting siren call of sin to distract you from purifying yourself for the day when Christ will come back. Be ready, because He alone is worthy. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to study your word this morning. What a joy it is to be reminded of this great hope that we have in Christ. He is coming back. And so we do pray, Lord, come quickly. Jesus Christ, come back for us, your church. Help us to live with this mindset, remembering that we are not of this place, for we are of heaven. But while we are here, Lord, God, let us and even use this hope to purify us, to make us more like Christ in every respect, that we would be using our time and our treasure and our talents for your glory, that the gospel would go forth. It's in the precious name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.